Amen. That was awesome. Um, today is the, the last day of our series. We've been walking through 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, all, all the chapters. We've like 18 weeks in, so almost five months of, uh, of just walking through uh, a letter, Paul's first letter to an ancient church in uh, Greece called Corinth. And um, I just want to let you know before we even get started, uh, in two weeks, March 19th, we're going to be having uh, Vision Sunday. You're not going to want to miss it. We've got some things that I'm going to be giving you. Um, and uh, literally just taking a pause to look back on what God's been doing and then also look forward to, to the things that, that God has for us and some fresh vision moving forward. Um, so without further ado, if you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 um, and stand with me, we're going to read... Just We're going to read through uh, all of chapter 16 together. Um, we're not going to skip any of it. We're just going to, going to walk right through it, verse 1 through 24 together. So it says this, uh, Now about the collection of, for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of, each, of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems uh, advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send, me, send him on his way. To, in peace, so that he may return to me. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. Now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go, to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Be on guard. Stand firm in your faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what we're lacking from you, for they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write these greetings in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Lord, and, um, in this very last chapter of, of Paul to these people that he dearly loved. I pray that um, there would be some things that we could grab a hold of and, um, and apply into our lives, to our church, into this day. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You can be seated. So um, Paul kind of starts out 
in verse 1 talking about a collection of money. And um, I thought it'd be good for us to drill down on this because we all love talking about money in church. And um, he apparently had told the Corinthians about this previously because he doesn't give much context apart from now about that, about that collection that we're sending to Jerusalem. So apparently they already knew about this and he was just kind of following up. And what I love about this is that he actually gives them biblical instruction on how to handle Christian giving. Um, and he says this, I'll read it for you, just verse two. He says, this, this is packed with all kinds of principles. He says, on the first day of each week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, um, saving it up so that when I come, no collection will have to be made. So essentially, in your notes, it says this, like Christian giving should be prayerful, proportionate, and purposeful. Um, prayerful, proportionate, and purposeful. It's three Ps because I'm a preacher, um, and that's, it just helps, helps me. Um, what I love about what Paul is communicating here in instructing them in is that there, there's no arm twisting. There's no manipulation. There's no false promises for your seed faith. Stand by now. People will call 1-800, you know, for we accept, you know, MasterCard, Visa, and American Express. Like, there's no, like, begging. There's no weird, awkward, like, if you give, God will give back tenfold, and, like, all these weird promises. There's no emotional involved here. Paul's just like very much like, hey, about that collection. Um, and then he, he tells them, he says, each one of you should set aside a sum of money. Um, so the first question is this, like who should be giving? Each one. Um, Paul assumes that everyone in the church is giving. It's just an assumption that he makes and, and he just communicates, each one of you should set aside a sum of money. Um, and for, for, this, for this collection, for this offering. And he, um, he doesn't tell them specifically how much they should give at all, really. It's just kind of this, just set aside and, and essentially be prayerful about it um, other than, you know, be proportionate in your giving. So what I mean by that is like here at New Life, we teach the biblical principle of tithing. Um, in, in my mind, I'm like, I've, I've tithed since I was in high school. Um, I, I got saved right before I, ninth grade, and, um, and I, just, I just began. Nobody had to convince me. I didn't, I didn't even need a Bible study to know that, like, okay, if God's my provider, then, like, what do I give? I've been giving all of this and spending all this on, on me, so what does this look like as, as a believer? And I, honestly, you couldn't convince me not to tithe in, anymore because I've just watched God miraculously provide for my family um, when it doesn't even make sense. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like if you if you give you tithe, you're just like the the economy of God is so uh, so different than the economy of man. Like it doesn't make sense because it feels like I'm giving, so I have less, and God says, "No, you actually have more." And it's like mm, I don't think that works, and it does, and it does, and it doesn't even make sense. But um, so my point is this: like. Um, when you honor God first with your wealth, it allows him and gives him the opportunity to bless you. When you don't honor him then, um, in, your, in your giving, then you are essentially white-knuckling it through life, um, trying to convince yourself that you alone are your own provider. Um, part of why I love giving, tithing, is quite honestly, it's a, it's a constant reminder on a weekly basis for me that I am not my own provider, that he is my provider, because I need reminding because I forget weekly. 
I get, I, I don't know about you, like I've got concerns and things that I need to provide for and care for and all of those things. And I love the, the act of giving and this, what, even what Paul's talking about, because it continually reminds me that, that he alone is my provider. Everything I have is his. So no matter what, he's like, here's what I would advise you in. He says, your giving should be prayerfully decided upon beforehand. It should be prayerfully decided upon beforehand. Um, so, so your giving is between you and God. It isn't between you and the preacher or you and a ministry or you and, and some arm-twisting person trying to emotionally get you to give. Like you should be prayerfully considering actually asking the Lord, God, what is it that you would ask of me to give and then choose to walk in obedience to that and response to that in your giving. Um, and this is, this is kind of what, what Paul is just leaving up to uh, and assuming is happening for each person as they are, are choosing to give. And then he says this, this weird thing. It says, in keeping with your income. What that means is, is that we give proportionately. Um, you may be able to write a bigger check, but God does not measure your generosity by the size of the check that you write. He measures um, your generosity proportionately. Let me explain. Um, when, I, when I first got saved, I, I had a, um, a paper route. Um, and <laughs> this is the worst job ever. If you're like, no, I got a really horrible job, and be like, come, just see me. Just see me. Like if, you, if you're like a paper boy back in the Dizay, right? Back when like, you know, when in the 1900s, like my kids would say, it was a horrible job because you made like maybe $45 a week and you had to beg people to get paid. You, you worked every day of the week, and then you had to go ring people's doorbells, and they all hid. They turned off all the lights. They're like, shh, quiet. Paperboy's coming. Paperboy's coming. And they all act like they're all dead, and like nobody's, it's a vacant home, you know, and you, just to get paid. So uh, my point is this. If I was still giving now what I was giving then when I was a paperboy making $45 a, a week, that is not generous for me right now. Like, that's no, that's no sacrifice. That is literally the least I, I could give. Um, and so this is what I would say, and I believe it's what Paul would communicate, is like, make sure that in your giving that you are not tipping God for good service. He's not a waiter. He's your provider. I'm trying. I know. I told you, Margaret. There, he, that preacher, that whippersnapper's only after my money. I told you I'm out of here as soon as he says amen. I'm not coming. Like, I, I know, I know, I know. Here's the reality, though. Like, this, is, this is what Paul's communicating. This is some biblical principles and, that I'm just trying to communicate and literally leave it between you and, you and God. But there are, some, there are some people in this room, some people in, in the church that, that may not give a huge amount, but I, will, I guarantee you they are more generous than you. They may give less than you, but they are way more generous than you. There are people, followers of Jesus Christ here at New Life that, that give less than I do, but they are way more generous than me. Way more generous than me. And it is generosity that, that gets the attention of God. Um, let me show you, because Pastor Tom and I didn't even plan this. It was so weird when he started uh, reading this. Mark chapter 12, verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the Offerings were put and watched the crowd put their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. They wrote big checks. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Jesus, calling all of his disciples together, he looks at this woman. He's like, guys, 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 look, look, look. Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. 
What is he saying? Here's the reality. At the end of the day, at the temple treasury, the ushers might take the, take the money and they count it up. And, and, and what they find is that this woman gave far less than anybody else. Just She gave far less. But at the, also at the end of the day, Jesus takes into account and he says that she gave far more than all the other people in that room because she was giving proportionately. Um, and he says this, he's, he says, saving it up so that when I come, no collection has to be made. Paul is telling them, be purposeful rather than emotional in your giving. Um, and I mean this in love, but like, um, you, in your giving, you should be purposeful and prayerful in your giving, not emotional in your giving. So Paul is communicating ahead of time. He's like, guys, look, I don't have like a five-minute video with like starving kids that are gonna like emotionally twist your arm to give, okay? Like I'm not coming with like a tear-jerking testimony that's gonna be like, oh my gosh, just take my money. How much do you need? Like he's not coming like that. He's like, I'm not gonna even take a collection, y'all. He's like, I'm not coming in. I'm not gonna pass the plate. And like they used to do back in the day at weird churches, they would like pass the plate. The ushers would go back and count it up and be like, it's not enough. We need $200 more. Pass the plate again. And they would just go and be like, People be like, oh my gosh, be like shaking people upside down to get the cash out of them. Like, oh, just take my money. I want to leave, right? Like that, Paul's like, that is not what's going to be happening here. He's like, you should be prayerful, purposeful. You should give proportionately, but do that before God. He's asking each person to pray about it, to give proportionately and purposefully. And as the Lord instructs you to give, he's like, I'm not coming to take a collection. He's like, I'll come and, and take the, all the things that you've been setting aside each week, that sum of money that God, between you and God, he's told you to do. And then he tells them to make a plan. Because unless you plan to give, you will never find margin to give. You won't. I never, like at the end of the week, I don't know about you, maybe you're very different. At the end of my week, I'm never sitting on a bunch of money where I'm just like, my gosh, I've got so much money left over. <laughs> at the end of my week, like, who wants it? Anybody? Anybody need some money? I got like extra. Just, I'd love to give it. Like, I, I've just got so much left over. I love to just like, just throw it away. Anybody, let's just, let's just get it out of here, right? No, because that's why the, the whole idea of like giving first fruits, because if you don't honor God with your, first with your wealth, you won't have anything left over because we're really, really good, especially as Americans, at living up to the edge of our means. And so he's like, make a plan because if you don't plan to give, you will never find margin to give. And so he's like, allow God to work his generosity through you um, because generosity is a mark of maturity in the Christian life. Now, Paul then, I'm, I'm kind of moving on. Um, so you're like, good, hallelujah. Um, verse three, um, Paul talks about, he's such a spiritual leader of character. He says this, verse three. Then when I arrive, I'll give letter of, recommend, of introduction to the men that you approve, catch this, to send them with your gift to Jerusalem. And if it's advisable, like if you want me to go, then they will accompany me. What Paul is telling them in this collection of money that they're gathering to give to people that are hurting and in and, need and in Jerusalem, he's like, your money is not passing through my hands. It's not passing through my hands. You can choose the people that you trust to take your gift to Jerusalem. And if you really are like, no, 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 we trust you, Paul. We want you to take it. You go, you go. He's like, that's fine. I'll go. But they need to come with me as accountability. 
And I love how Paul literally sets up accountability in his ministry even when he isn't forced to do it. Even when they might trust him with it anyway, he's like, that's fine, I'm glad you trust me, but here's the reality. I am putting accountability in and over into this ministry because it's important and it's the right thing to do. And as I think about this, I'm like, I was reading through it this week, I'm like, I am so thankful that we have a church treasurer, that we have a bookkeeper, that we have an accountant that does an annual review on our books every single year, that we have a board of directors here that um, stewards the financial decisions of this church, and that none of your giving goes through my hands. None of it. Like, I, I have no idea how much you give. I don't count things. I don't, I don't sign checks. None of those things are, are things that, that I do. I thank God that, and I pray that this church would continue to be a place that we would follow the leading of Paul and put accountability in even when it's not forced. Amen? Amen. May we always be a church that does that. And you're like, fine, Martha. All right. <sighs> you just want my money. All right, verse five, he goes on. Now I'm really moving on. He says, after I go through Macedonia, I'll come to you for I will be going through Macedonia. And then he says, perhaps I'll stay with you for a while or even spend the winter, which never happens in Maine. Nobody's like, I think I'm going to come for the winter. No, they're always like, I'll be there in July. See you then. Um, so, that when, so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want, I, I do not want to see you now and only make a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you. And then he says these, these words at the end. I don't know if you catch these. He says, if the Lord permits. Now, it's interesting to me. I'm, I just want you to know, like, um, I, I, I didn't grow up in the church. So, like, I, I lack some of the Christianese sometimes. And so when people use terms like this, it kind of makes me giggle. Because um, just this week, I was... I was trying to reschedule um, a, a meeting with some pastors and just trying to find a new time. And so we threw out a date and um, the, one of the pastors wrote like, I should be back from my vacation that day, Lord willing. I always say it with a British accent just because I, I don't know how else to say it, but it's like, I shan't be back by that date, right? Lord willing. And I'm like, um, okay. Um, and, then, and then I've tried in the past to like schedule out uh, a lunch date uh, with, with someone in the past, and like I have a very busy schedule, so sometimes it's like a couple weeks out, and um, <laughs> um, and, and the person was like, okay, well, well you know, like, how about like on the 19th at Applebee's at 11.30, and they, they wrote back, if the Lord should tarry, I shall meet you at Applebee's on the 19th of April at 11.30 a.m. Now, I don't know if they actually said it that way, but that's how I read it, just because it's fun. And, and whenever we say things like that as Christians, like, should the Lord tarry? Or if the Lord permits, I always think to myself, is there something I don't know? <laughs> like, is there something that I'm missing here? Because um, if Jesus returns between now and our Applebee's date, or if one of us dies, let's just say, I think our Applebee's luncheon is canceled. I'm not up in heaven, Jesus comes and comes of y'all, we live, you know, the rapture comes, and I'm like, oh shoot, I didn't say if the Lord willeth, right? Like, he didn't tarry. Hey, we're not gonna have that meeting, by the way. Were you expecting me to be at Applebee's? Like, no. No, nobody's expecting those things to happen. And it makes me wonder, like, what is Paul getting at when he says, like, if the Lord permits, or should he tarry? What is he saying? Um, 
I think that Paul had a very different life than you and I. He was a traveling itinerant apostle. He was planning churches and then going around and revisiting these churches, and he never knew what he was going to encounter. He never knew the backlash, the opposition, the problems that they were having. And so he never knew he was going to go and visit a church or plant a church. Uh, He never knew how long he was going to have to stay there to be able to help plant or fix problems that were going on um, or how long it might require of him to stay. But But even if your life looks different than the Apostle Paul, even if you're not a traveling itinerant apostle in the first century, um, Paul's communicating a principle that is so important to the Christian life. And I've written in in your notes, it says this, look for where God is at work around you and then join him in it. Look for where God is at work around you and then join him in it. Make sure that you are not so consumed with your plan and your work and your thing that you fail to see what God is doing at work around you and joining him in that. And that's what Paul's saying. He's like, look, I got all these plans. I got all these things. I'm going to go visit them. I'm going over here. I'm going to stay here probably through the winter. I'm not sure. I'm making my plans, but if the Lord permits, I'll be there, but I have no idea because I'm joining in whatever it is that he's doing. Proverbs 16, 9 says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his step. In other words, make a plan, but allow the Lord to lead you in it. So, yes, absolutely. This is where I want to go. This is where I'm planning on doing. This is what I want to go. But in the reality of that, that I am always aware of what it is that God is doing at work around me, and I'm joining him in that. And then Paul talks about the work that he's doing, all the, the things that God's blessing. And this is verse 9. Some of you need, if you're looking for a verse to put on like a mug, you should put this one on here. It could be your life verse. He says, because a great door for effective ministry has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. Isn't it interesting? I mean, this, what he just said in verse 9, if you just reread that a few times, it flies in the face of how we make Christian decisions these days. Like, I don't know about you, but many times in our modern-day Christianity, we see opposition as a sign of a closed door of opportunity. But that's not the way for Paul. Like, for Paul, he doesn't see open doors and opposition as mutually exclusive. Paul doesn't like seem to measure how effective ministry is by how easy ministry is. He's like, man, I got this awesome, big, open, great door of opportunity for effective ministry, and there's so many people who hate me. It's awesome. Like, what? Are you kidding me? We would be like, "Uh, seems like that's a closed door, Paul. And he's like, oh, no, man. This is awesome. I'm so excited about what God's doing. But people hate you. I know. I know. Isn't that cool? No. No, in fact, most of us would be like, I think that I should probably back out gracefully. And he's like, no, 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 no. Opposition is not always a sign that you're on the wrong path. Sometimes it means you're on the right one. And this is is what Paul's bringing out. It flies in the face of some of us. Like when Christians take their cues from the world around them rather than the word of God and the spirit of God inside them, they will end up making life decisions based upon whether or not they're happy. Oh, because that's, at the end of the day, I mean, God wants me to be happy, right? And so we, we, we literally, like, we, we choose to stay or to leave. 
a ministry or a church or a job or a friendship or a marriage based upon our happiness. But our happiness is a really fickle master because it's, it's always fleeting. Just when you think you've achieved it, it wants something different. That's kind of what happiness is. It's kind of like it's drugs. It's like addiction. It's like you think you achieved it, you got it, but then you need more to be able to keep the same thing that you thought you already had. He's like, literally, God is looking for much more than your happiness. He's actually looking for you to walk into obedience. And obedience is the byproduct of, well, the joy, joy is the byproduct of obedience. When we choose to just say, well, God, I, I feel like I know that I'm doing what, I, what, I'm, what you've called me to do. I'm not seeking after my own happiness. I'm walking in what it is, the blessing that you've called me into. Um, the byproduct of that is joy, which is far better than happiness. Happiness depends on your circumstance. Joy is something that you have no matter what you're facing. And this is what Paul's saying. He's like, dude, guys, I got this awesome opportunity. It's this great open door of effective ministry. And there's so many people who hate me right now. <laughs> Isn't this awesome? We're like, no. But he's like, you can face opposition and hardship and still have joy. Because you know that you're right exactly where God has placed you. And when you know that you know that you know that you're right in the center of where God has placed you, it really doesn't matter who's hating on you. It really doesn't matter what people are writing. It really doesn't matter what people are, it literally doesn't matter the hardship or the circumstances of the opposition because you're like, you couldn't pay me to get out of this place. I'm not running. I'm staying because this is a great door of effective ministry. And then Paul writes these, this, these two, two uh, like they kind of sum it up the whole, actually the whole chapter, probably the whole book, verse 13, he, he says these words, and they're kind of like military words. He's like, be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. So he says these four words, these four kind of like, almost like uh, military mantras kind of thing. And I want to just walk through them real quick. The first one he says, be on your guard. It could also be translated as stay awake. Wake up, be alert, be aware of the slip and slide of sin that is crouching at your door waiting for you. Be awake. He, Peter says it a little bit differently in 1 Peter 5, verse 8. He says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You have an enemy, church, who hates you. He wants to steal, kill, and to destroy you. Everything that God is trying and is doing in your life, he wants to overturn and cause you to believe a lie about it. Um, Ephesians 6 verse 11 says this, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the enemy's schemes. Do you know that the devil has schemes? He has strategies, ways, assignments to take you out. It's, it, it, is, it is the way that he works. It's the way that he's always worked. And so what I would say is this, stop looking to the culture around us to right itself. Oh man, if we could just get so-and-so in office, then all of a sudden now everything would get back to the way that it used to be at the Christian nation that we, that we used to have. Don't judge whether something is right or wrong by the sliding scale of the world around you because it is always changing. Because the church is rarely taken down by the sin in the world around it. It's taken down by the sin we tolerate inside it. 
So he's like, so wake up, stay alert, be on your guard, put on the full armor of God. Why? Because you are at war. You have an enemy who hates you and wants to steal, kill, and to destroy you. So look alive. And then he says, stand firm in the faith. In other words, don't waver, persevere, live on mission, continue, don't quit. You started working the plan, keep working the plan. You're on, you're on this day, keep moving forward. It's one day at a time in the same direction over a long period of time. It is consistency that will continue to bring you freedom. So keep working it, keep persevering and living on mission. And then he says these words, he says, be courageous. That's the third thing he says. The actual, if you look it up in the Greek, the actual word, if you read it in the King James Version, could, actually, could be translated as this, act like men. It's kind of weird. But it, literally, if you, if you read it, I mean, it, it's very rarely used in the Bible, but it means man up. He's like, be courageous, stand strong in your faith, and man up. Act like men. And, and for you women in here, you're probably like, well, that sounds kind of sexist. I want to be very clear. Um, it may be the term that is used, but we all know that Paul isn't leaving you out. Like, men may be strong, but we are not tough like you. Here's the reality. Yeah, come on, woman. You got this. Like, here's the reality, guys. Women, you know this to be true. If men had to give birth to babies, the human race would be extinct a long, long time ago. We would have been, I'm out. I'm out. Women are tough. Men may be strong. We I pick it up, I pulled it down, right? Like, we can do that. Like, that's cool. Like, yeah, act like men. Rah, rah, rah. But women, man, we're, we're like, women all know this to be true. Men are like, well, but you never had a man called. You have no idea, right? It's horrible. It's horrible. And women are like, I've had a headache for three weeks. And his name is you, right? Like, but I'm trying. I'm trying. But here's the reality. So, so, so Paul's like, literally, he's like, be strong, act like men, be tough like women, do hard things, don't give up, persevere, don't shrink back, don't walk in fear, keep moving forward. And then he ends it with this, he says, be strong. But he doesn't mean it this way, like, he doesn't mean like, just stop being weak, just be strong, just cut it out, just be strong, stop it, do it. He's actually, maybe a better way of saying it is this, strengthen yourself. Just as you're going to the gym and you're working out and you're getting buff and I know it's really cool and all of that kind of stuff, he's like, what are you doing to build yourself up spiritually? Build up your spirit. Do things that will strengthen you spiritually. What does that mean? Get into the word of God. Maybe, maybe you start to build yourself up. We talked a few weeks ago by praying in the spirit building up your spirit person in the inside. Like, get around men and women, godly men and women who will build you up, who will push you forward, and sometimes drag your dead, lifeless butt to Jesus if, he, if they need to. You need to be around people that will pick you up and be like, come on, we're going to church. And be like, nope, I'm done. I'm not doing it anymore. Okay, well, we'll pick you up and drag you, right? Kicking and screaming. We need to be around people that push us and pull us and sometimes drag us to the thing that we know that we need. And when we surround ourselves with those, we are strengthening our inner man. The Bible says that, that iron sharpens iron. And so when we have friends, when we have people around us that are building us up, not tearing us down, we go further faster than we ever could have gone on our own. And then all of a sudden, he says something weird. Verse 14, he says all these things. He's like, 
He's like, be on your guard, stand firm, act like men, be courageous, be strong. And then he says in verse 14, do everything in love. And I'm like, what's, what's love got to do with it? What's love got to do, got to do with it? Hey, y'all thinking it, I just sang it. Okay. I mean, if you ever wondered this, I'm kind of like, okay, well, we were just going like, oh, man, 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 man up, man this, okay, 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 okay. And then he's like, do everything in love. What? What does that have to do with this? You literally stamp, there are two verses. You, they seem completely opposite. And here's the point. And this is why I say it sums up everything that Paul's been talking about through this whole letter. He's literally saying, do not let go of the tension that I have been talking about, that I've spent so much of this letter explaining the tension between love and work. Like, they, do not let go of those things. And he spends, um, he says it a little bit differently in his second letter to the Corinthians. So this is the second letter. He says it, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with, catch this, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. This is so key as I bring these two letters together. Here's the point. Make no mistake, Christian. You are at war. You have an enemy who hates you. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy you, your family, your marriage. He wants to take you out. But here's, here's the point that Paul's making. Don't make the mistake that you can use the weapons of the kingdom of this world to wage war for the kingdom of God. What does that mean? It means this. Shame is not a tool of the kingdom of God. Honor is. Fear is not a tool of the kingdom of God. Faith is. Manipulation is not a tool of the kingdom of God. Trust is. Selfishness is not a tool of the kingdom of God. Serving is. Pride is not a tool of the kingdom of God. Humility is. Hate is not a, a tool, a weapon of the kingdom of God. Love is. And so Paul is saying, don't you think that you're going to use the weapons of this world to, to fight the war that I'm talking about? And he goes on to talk about these weapons that um, essentially of God's kingdom. He says this, on the contrary... These weapons that, in, 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 in verse 3 of 2 Corinthians chapter 20, he says, on the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. If you want to demolish demonic strongholds, you don't use the tools of the enemy to do it. You don't use the tools of the enemy. You fight with the arsenal that the Holy Spirit has given you. And you're like, well, what is that? What? what what tools, do I, what weapons do I have there? I'm glad you asked. Here, here, here's what I'll leave with you. What if, what if we leaned into the gifts of the Holy Spirit, not as merit badges of the Christian life, but as the very ammunition of the Christian life? What if we leaned into the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control? Like, what if we leaned into the fruit of the Spirit, not as like really nice things that you should probably work on because Jesus really likes them, 
but as the weapons of the warfare that demolish demonic strongholds in our world. What if we're trying to use the weapons of this kingdom to wage a war for the kingdom of God and we're missing the point? I will tell you, church, what Paul's communicating here changes everything. He's like, you better fight. You better stand up. You better not back down because war is upon you whether you like it or not. But how you fight? You fight with love. Do everything in love. And then Paul concludes with kind of a harsh statement. He says in verse 22, if anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. What strikes me is that Paul doesn't say you have to believe in him. He says um, you need to love Jesus. So Paul's actually like describing that there is a difference between believing in Jesus and loving Jesus. And if I'm going to be really honest, like in our current American Christian culture, like we put a lot of talk around believing in Jesus, like giving mental assent to him, like kind of like, uh, yeah, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of like, do you believe in Santa Claus? Well, yeah, I guess we'll say it. Okay, I'll say it. We'll just, just keep, keep saying it. Here's the reality. It, when, we, when we literally debase faith to just a mental assent or belief in Jesus, it's essentially we've, we've just risen up to the lowest level of faith, which is demonic faith. What do I mean by that? Well, the Bible says that, that the, even the demons believe, and they're scared, and they shudder. So, so just believing in Jesus is like, okay, well, yeah, I believe that Jesus is a, was, was a man, that he came, and that, you know, uh, okay, that, he, that he's real, that, that he's not fake, that he's not made up, that he was a historical figure. But, but we're not saved by simply just believing in him. We're saved when we repent of our sins and receive his love that we don't deserve in order to love him back with the love that he gave us. That's the beauty of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the question isn't, do you believe in Jesus? I hope you do. I mean, if you don't believe that he's real, that a historical figure that changed the world split time in two and all of these things, like we got other problems and things we need to talk about. But like the question at the heart of it is not do you believe in him? Do you love him? Because he loved you so much. Let me tell you what he did for you. Do you, do you love him? Why don't you stand with me? Um, we're going to receive communion together. Um, and as I talk, I just want to, you can start working on that pesky piece of cellophane. If you're joining us online, um, you can grab a cracker, cookie, some, grab some whatever to just be a part of this with us. Um, I want to drill down on this for a second because I don't want to just leave you there and just be like, well, believing and loving is, is two, are two different things. Um, in John chapter 21, Jesus had died. He was buried he risen from the dead. The tomb was empty. But his followers were still, like, discouraged. They're like, man, I don't know what to do. Like, this isn't the same. This isn't what we signed up for. It didn't happen the way that we thought that it would. So they're like, what are, what are we going to do? So they're like, let's go fishing. And so they all go fishing. Peter and a bunch of the, the, the other disciples, they go fishing. And they're just like, just like way, way back in the beginning when they first met Jesus, they, they went fishing all night, caught nothing. It was like me on any fishing trip I've ever gone on. Um, <laughs> They got nothing. And the morning comes, and this is a really cool story. In John chapter 21, you can read it later. All of a sudden, they look over. There's a guy on the seashore, and he yells out to them. He's like, hey, 
catch this. You might remember this. Hey, maybe you should try to put your net on the other side of the boat if you want to catch something. And all the other guys, they're like, man, what a jerk. You know, come on. And Peter, it says, he's like, that is so Jesus. So Jesus. Such a Jesus thing to say. And so they do it. Sure enough, they put it on the other side of the boat. Boom. They get hit with so many fish. They're like dragging it in. So they finally get all their, all their fish to shore. John chapter 21, I'm still telling you about it. He goes, all of a sudden, Jesus, they realize it's Jesus sitting on the shore. He's cooked, he's got like a, a fire going. He cooks them fish, makes them breakfast. They eat breakfast together with the risen Jesus, right? Like cool, cool experience. And then my Bible says, Jesus reinstates Peter. And he asks Peter a question. Peter's discouraged. Peter's like, okay, that was a great meal. Thanks for breakfast. I just don't know what I'm supposed to do. And I've, I've already, you know, said I didn't even know you. I ran away when I should have been there for you when you were being crucified. And it says Jesus, Jesus reinstates Peter. And he, how does he do it? He asks Peter a question. In fact, he asks Peter a question three times. Same question. Now, given our modern American Christianity, you would think that Jesus would say to Peter, Peter, do you believe in me? Do you, uh, do you believe that I exist? Do you, do you believe that everything that I've said to you is, is truth? But that's not what he asks Peter. Three times, almost to the point of being completely awkward about it, he, he asks him, Simon, his old name, son of John, do you love me? Peter's like, yeah, you know I love you. He says, feed my sheep. He asks him again, hey, Simon, son of John, do you, do you love me? And there's this awkward exchange. And in the midst of Peter answering a question that he was not expecting, he was reinstated <laughs> as, as the apostle that he was called to be. Um, and I just want to encourage you as we receive communion today, um, may we remember that what Jesus did for us was not just a transaction. It was love in action. And may we remember not just what we believe about him as though it were some sort of doctrinal statement that we need to check off of a list. He wants you to remember his love for you that made a way for you where there was no way. And in that remembering, in the receiving of his love, man, you can finally love him back with a love that is not yours. Part of what we do today as we celebrate communion is literally celebrate his love. This ridiculously outlandish, generous, I don't deserve it, I don't even know why he would do it for me, love. Like, it's, it's crazy. Paul says, the Lord Jesus in the night he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. Let's break it together. He says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, of my love. See together. The same way after supper, he took the cup saying, 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink together. Lord, I thank you for the reminder today that you're not after our belief. You're after our love. Lord, as you chase us down with a ridiculously outlandish love, the Bible says that it is your loving kindness that draws us to repentance. May we respond fresh again today, just like these people under the waters of baptism to just say, man, I don't even know how this is true, but if it is, why would I not want it? I receive you fresh today, Jesus. I receive that love. I pray that it would change me from the inside out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to take a moment and, um, and pray over Zach uh, Strout and his family. This is his last Sunday, and uh, we're going to be sending him out. Um, so if I could, where's he at? Oh, okay. The whole fam is coming up. I love it. Hey, guys. If I could have the praise team kind of gather around as well to pray for them. And, um, and maybe some staff, you guys want to come up too. And, and I would just encourage you guys as we pray just that you can extend your hand a blessing over them. Um, you know, I, was, I want to read this scripture before we pray. I was... I was reading through chapter 16 this whole week and I got to this one part that I just could not get away from. And it's in chapter 16, Paul names some friends. And they're weird named friends. Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. And he says something about them that made me think of Zach all week long. And he says in verse 18, for they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. You know, um, it is it's sometimes difficult to leave well. Um, it's not difficult, it's just rare. Um, and as I've been able to just pray with this family to continue to, as they felt that the Lord was, was lead, leading them to what I call Illinois, um, <laughs> I will continue to call it Illinois. Um, we get an opportunity to send them. So our goodbye is, although it's filled with tears, it's also filled with excitement for what it is that God has over them. Amen? And so I just want to pray a prayer of blessing over them as we send them out for the entire family. Um, so maybe you join with me in prayer. Lord, I thank you for this entire family. <laughs> and I... I affirm the call of God on each and every single one of them. I affirm the call of God on Zach, on Sarah, on Josiah, on Levi, on Malachi. Lord, I thank you for the blessing that they have been to this church over the past nine years. God, I ask that as we send them out clear-eyed, wholeheartedly, Lord, we thank you for the gift that they've been to us, to our church the gift that they've been to building this team of worship leaders. Lord, we thank you that they continually lead us into your presence. 
And as we send them out, Lord, I pray that these, this next season of their, of their life, of their ministry, would, would reap so much fruit that they wouldn't be able to hold it. And so, Lord, we thank you for them. I pray blessing over them. Continue to keep your hand on them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.